Good morning. Max said my name is Jeff. I also serve as one of the pastors here and uh, say hello to everyone. And I want to say hi to my wife, Catherine, who's not feeling well, so she's watching on the live stream. And I want to ask the AV booth if you guys could just monitor to make sure she likes the live stream at some point today. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but I am uh, so glad to be with you all and so glad for the uh, opportunity to dive into this wonderful uh, book of Daniel together. So let me just pray for us one more time and we will, we will get into it together. Lord, thanks so much for uh, this time. Thank you for uh, the privilege of, of, of singing, of, of hearing your word, of, of the baptism that we witnessed. And we're just really glad to be here and we're really thankful uh, for your great love for us and pray that uh, your uh, love would be very apparent uh, as we go through this passage uh, today together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we eat and how we eat it, these things play a big part in our lives and can often reveal a lot about us. And this has been true really throughout history. Certain societies have had you know, different codes, written or not, about, about what sort of food uh, is acceptable and what sort of food is not. And those same societies often had written and unwritten codes that governed uh, the times that people would come together to eat. And these codes were, were very important to the functioning of society. Uh, we know this was certainly true in ancient Egypt. Uh, we know this in part because of the book of Genesis in the Bible. We hear in the book of Genesis that the Egyptians would not eat with the Israelites because that would be an abomination to them. It was a very big deal to them that they would not defile themselves by eating with those that were not Egyptians. And even today, I think, you know, society obviously has changed a good amount, but, but what and how we eat is still kind of a flashpoint at times for cultural conflict. Yes, there are people that still follow kind of strictly religious codes around eating, but this is true even for those that, that don't consider themselves religious in the traditional sense. I once uh, read an article that was entitled, The New Religion, How the Emphasis on Clean Eating Has Created a Moral Hierarchy for Food. And the article goes on to talk about how strongly people uh, tend to feel about, about their food and eating choices, often attaching uh, religious or even messianic, you know, uh, uh, impulses to these decisions. One of the experts uh, interviewed for the article, a Professor McCann, said, if you think you're the pure, someone else is impure. And the article says the more self-righteous we are about what we eat, because it's ethical or healthy or local, the more we also tend to judge others on what they eat, or worse, who they are. There is a reason someone says, I'm a vegetarian, rather than I eat vegetarian. It feels like virtue, said this professor. I'm a virtuous person. I'm controlling my body. I'm disciplining my body, and you're not. Now, of course, companies understand all about this, right? And they would like us to not just buy their food or eat at their restaurant, but to identify ourselves as the kind of person who buys their food or eats at their restaurant. That's why some of the, the funniest, but I think most intense arguments I tend to have with my friends over like foods and restaurants, right? Because what and how we eat can sometimes become like this key part of the way that we think about ourselves. For example, I was recently accused of blasphemy because I said that Coke Zero tastes better than regular Coke. Now we could talk a lot about this, and yes, Coke Zero is better. Here I stand. But I'll stop there because the important thing is for us to, to see that, that what we eat and how we eat it is a big part of the human story. 
And it's also a big part of the biblical story. And, and today's passage in Daniel 1 is certainly no exception. We're really just beginning to embark on our time together in the book of Daniel. And in the last couple of weeks, Max has kind of set the stage for us by describing a lot of the history that led up to Daniel and his friends being taken into Babylon, which is where they are now. And then last week, he began to show us how these four young men were beginning to be trained for service of Babylon's king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we've already seen that, that bringing these young men from Israel to Babylon is, is going to cause tension. We, we thought about that a little bit with the new names that they received. And we see that they are living in exile in a new culture with different standards and certainly different beliefs and certainly different gods. And where does this tension express itself right away? As it has in, in so many societies and at so many times, it happens here in this passage through food. And in this passage, we are going to see Daniel respond to this test in a way that hints at how the rest of the book of Daniel is going to go. And if we look closely, we'll see that Daniel responds in a way that helps us. And if we keep looking closely, we'll see that Daniel responds in a way that points to the truth and the beauty of our God. So we're going to take this passage in two parts. We're going to start with Daniel's response to testing in verses 8 to 16. I want to read that again, and then we'll focus on that. So verse 8 begins, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So here is Daniel in, in this new land with, with these new customs. And he realizes there are going to be situations where who he is as a follower of the God of Israel is going to be at odds with who the king of Babylon wants him to be. And the narrator brings us to this first main conflict as Daniel resolves that he will not defile himself with the king's food and wine. Now when we read that, really the first question that comes up is, why is it that, that Daniel would be defiling himself if he ate or drank in this way? And there's, as there always is, there's a good number of theories as to why this is. One theory is, is that the food that Daniel was given contained foods that God had told the Israelites not to eat. Maybe it was, you know, pork or something else. Maybe, but that doesn't really explain why Daniel wouldn't drink the wine. So maybe that's the answer. Another theory is that maybe this food and drink had already been sacrificed to Babylon's gods, and Daniel felt that eating it, by eating it, he'd be participating in some sort of idol worship. And another theory is that Daniel just didn't want to be seen as, as being reliant on the king and the king's table, and he didn't want the king to get any credit for the development of he and his friends. And those are all interesting 
possibilities. I'm honestly not sure which one is correct, but I think the important thing is that this was about to be a really big issue for Daniel and his friends. You know, I can still remember the first time I went uh, to the home of Catherine's parents, and I was nervous because <laughs> there's obviously a lot of ways that that can go wrong. Uh, and one way it could have gone wrong is that I am uh, a little bit of a picky eater. And going to this new house, I, I did not know what, what the food would be like. But I knew I wanted to make a good impression on this family. And so I knew even if I don't like this food, I'm going to have to eat it. Well, my fears were, were quickly removed because the food was incredible. There was plenty of it. I ate as much as I could. So it was easy for me to make a good impression, at least in that area. If I had shown up, though, right, and refused to eat, or if I had said, no, nah, I brought my own food, it's hard to say that things would have gone uh, as well. See, by refusing to eat and, and drink in this way, Daniel was doing something very bold and very dangerous because he wasn't just coming across as, as a picky eater or, or even just as like an overly religious guy or something like that. He was coming across as someone who was not ready to wholly belong to Babylon. And this took great courage, as it always does when we're called to resist in this way. Max noted last week that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted not just Daniel to be bodily present in Babylon, but also wanted his mind and his heart and his soul to be fully part of Babylon. And by saying no to the king's food and drink, Daniel is saying, actually, I am bodily present here, but you don't even fully have my body. I do not ultimately belong to Babylon. Not my body, not my soul. It was very courageous what Daniel did. And we need this example, right, because there are always times in our lives and throughout church history where a church has to live out the truth and live out its beliefs and convictions, even when those beliefs and convictions are at odds with the surrounding culture, as Max just prayed for our denomination. And there are plenty of ways through, throughout every age and even today where we can defile ourselves, right, with the sins of the culture. We can obviously go along with what the world says, for example, about sexuality. We can go along with a world that, that makes an idol out of politics. We can go along with a world that, that loves anger and loves revenge. And on and on, and you know, a thousand other more mundane ways that, that we face throughout our days. And part of what we're called to, right, as a church, is to look out for where we might be prone to that sort of defilement. And, that, and that's going to look different at different times and to different churches. For Daniel, it was food. For us, it's going to be other things. And one difference we have from Daniel that I think is, is, a, is a key difference is that Daniel was picked up out of his homeland and then put down in a totally different land. And so, in a way, this was a little bit of an advantage for Daniel because it was probably a little easier for him to see what it looked like to compromise. It would be much harder, I think, for us when we spend all or most of our lives in one culture. And so it's really good for us to learn from and listen to voices, other voices, like Max said earlier, learning from those that are older than us, perhaps, right? Learning from voices from other backgrounds and other cultures, especially those that have operated at the margins as we engage our own culture. Considering the global church, considering the persecuted church, considering, even in America, the majority black church and its history, looking back to voices from church history, considering voices that are different than the ones that we are used to and we maybe already agree with, not because those other voices are like infallible, but because they can help us to see our culture with new eyes. 
And so this is what Daniel does. He resolves not to defile himself, not to partake of this food and drink, but also notice how Daniel goes about this. Because he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. As, as Daniel lives out his faith in a land that is very hostile to that faith, Daniel goes about this faith, not, not with swagger, not with anger about his rights and what he should have, not by throwing a tantrum, but through humble, quiet resolution. See, there were two potential ways Daniel could have defiled himself in this situation. First, he could have done the obvious thing and eaten the food and just kind of gone along with the culture. But second, he could have refused to eat the food and done so in a way that would have dishonored God. And that would have been so sad because Daniel wouldn't have avoided defiling himself. He just would have chose one form of defilement over another. And again, this is true for us as well in the church. We can absolutely defile ourselves by things like caving on Christian standards on sexuality and other things. We can defile ourselves in that way, but we can also defile ourselves when we turn to fear or resentment or disrespect or snark or cynicism as we find ourselves out of step with the surrounding culture. And what a shame it would be if we held the line in one area that gave in to the culture in the other. And that's why I think what Daniel does here is just so beautiful. When you see how Daniel carries himself here, there, there's this sense, right, of, of great calm and great trust in the Lord. And, and God, as he will continue to do throughout this book, cares for and protects Daniel. We see that, that phrase that, that runs through this section of Daniel. God gave, God gave. God gave Daniel favor in this case. And, and how do we see this? Because after Daniel asks the chief of the eunuchs this question, the chief responds by, by sharing his, his own fear. That, that if he allows Daniel to do this and Daniel doesn't develop like he should or he gets sick or weak or something like that, he is going to be the one that is in huge trouble and it will be his head. And so Daniel proposes a test to this man who reports to the chief of the eunuchs. He says, look, can we simply try this method for 10 days and see how it goes? And, and I think amazingly that the steward says yes. You know, from a human perspective, I don't really know why he, he says yes. It doesn't seem like he has a lot to gain. Although one commentator suggests, I love this, maybe the steward got to eat all the good food that would have been reserved for Daniel and his friends. I guess that's one answer. But of course, the, the overall answer, the overriding answer is no matter what reason the steward told himself, we see here that God is the one who is in charge of this situation. And so Daniel is given this permission. And because of God's kindness, this diet that, that Daniel and his friends were on was much more effective than the original diet. Now, no, I'm not going to recommend the Daniel diet from the pulpit, although, yes, let's all eat our vegetables. But I do know that God is the one who made this happen. And that, see, what is happening with Daniel and his friends and, and what they were eating is a part of something much bigger that God is doing here in Babylon. You see what's happening with this food, right? It's not just about the food. It's about the true God through the presence of Daniel and his friends, how the true God is subverting and undermining the gods, the false gods of Babylon. See, Babylon thinks that they are the conquerors and that Daniel and his friends and even their God will simply be like folded in to Babylon and its agenda. But see, our God doesn't get folded in to other agendas. He is in charge not just of Israel, but of all the world. And what is shaping up in this passage, as we see so often 
in the Old Testament narratives and the Psalms, so many other places in the Bible, and it's so awesome when you start to see it, is that God is basically setting up a showdown between himself and the other so-called gods. This is the true God versus the Babylonian imposters. And he demonstrates this not just with the diet of Daniel and his friends, but even further in the last part of our passage, starting in verse 17. It says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had com commanded that they, be, they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Notice that phrase that we see again in the first sentence of this section, God gave. God gave Daniel favor earlier in the passage, and now God gives Daniel and his friends learning and skill and wisdom and understanding. Not only were their bodies developing, but so are their minds and their hearts. And the author of Daniel is very clear that this is not because of Nebuchadnezzar, it's not because of the false gods of Babylon, but it's because of the true God. And so we see because of God, Daniel and his friends are ready for the next step, and that is that they would be brought before the great king, Nebuchadnezzar. These four Israelite young men are in the center of opposition territory. And again, their, their enemy isn't so much the, the Babylonians or, or the king, as Max pointed out last week. Their opponent is the false god that these people were trusting in. They are on the turf of Babylon's gods, and there is no escaping this. But there's also no escaping the opportunity that God has given them. You know, recently, over the last few months, many of us enjoyed uh, watching the Philadelphia Eagles march their way to the Super Bowl, right? And it makes me uh, remember about 20 years ago when the Eagles had, had this great chance to, to win one more game and go to the Super Bowl. And they were huge favorites against this team from Tampa Bay. And it was freezing cold. And it was in Philadelphia. And I was at that game. And let me tell you, there was no way we were losing that game in that cold weather on our home turf to this team from sunny Florida that we had just beaten like a month ago. Well, of course, we did lose. <laughs> and the team from Tampa Bay, let me tell you, they delighted in the fact that they walked right into our backyard and beat us. In fact, when they showed up at the Super Bowl uh, press conferences the next week, one of their best players, I'll never forget this, actually wore an Eagles jersey <laughs> to the press conference to demonstrate that they had gone into the backyard of the enemy and prevailed. I know some of you don't care about a sporting event that happened 20 years ago. I appreciate that. But I, what I want you to know is that there are some people sitting around you that are absolutely stinging as they remember this game. And hopefully all of us can see, right, it's one thing to win. It's another thing to win in your opponent's backyard. And that's exactly what God is doing here in Babylon. And let me tell you, it is not a close match. It is a blowout. The king brings in these young men, and they are far and away the best. Among all the young men in training, none were like these four, these four people from another nation. 
And as a result, they are in the presence of the king. And when the king needs them, the blowout continues. And, and really, they're just running up the score at this point. They are ten times better, we are told, than all the other so-called experts in the vast and powerful kingdom of Babylon. And, you know, this makes sense first and foremost because God is just, he's giving them this wisdom and understanding so much so that we are literally going to see Daniel interpret dreams very soon in this book. Further, it also makes sense because Daniel and his friends know the true God. And as the book of Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, they had insights into the, the problems plaguing Babylon because of the God that they knew. Earlier, we, we talked about how Daniel had the odd advantage of, be, of being picked up out of one culture and moved into the other because it allowed him and his friends to see the issues of this new culture. They were much clearer to him as a result. And while most of us have, have not been picked up out of one culture and put into another, I think we'd all agree we're living very much in a changing culture, in a changing time. And yes, that can be really scary. But with that challenge to the church comes a great opportunity, the opportunity to live as a community faithfully at the margins of society. I recently heard uh, another author quote this guy, Mark Sayers, a pastor and author who lives in Australia. He talks about the concept of living as a creative minority. Listen to what he says. His creative minorities find themselves withdrawn and distant from what they know and find comfort in. This distance enables them to see the myths and blind spots of their own culture, to reject those myths, and find a greater dependency on God. This dependency on a source of power and truth outside of the dominant culture leads creative minorities to refresh and reinvigorate ailing cultures. That's a little bit of what we see from Daniel and his friends here in Babylon. Even as they move closer to the seat of power, Daniel and his friends are very much on the margins in many ways, as we are going to see in the coming chapters. And yet, God will use them in powerful ways to bring his truth to bear on a powerful but sick culture. And he still does that today. And that is an adventure. <laughs> and that's the privilege that the church has. Friends, we have the story that trumps the other stories. We have the true and beautiful story that triumphs over all the false and ugly myths. We have the God that reigns over all the other so-called gods. And as we deep deepen in our understanding of who God is, what his word says, how his word speaks into our cultural moment. There's great wisdom and there's great understanding that comes with that. And we have the privilege of living and speaking in such a way that shows those around us who are far from God, who are hurting without him. We have the privilege of showing them there is something and someone better. You've heard me recommend it. You've heard Max mention it as well, a book called Biblical critical theory by Christopher Watkin, and he basically spends several hundred pages doing this exact thing, taking the biblical storyline and mapping it into and against the cultural idols of our day. Idols on the left, idols on the right. We often think we have to choose between one of those like dichotomized paths that our culture lays out for us, and sadly, some churches split up over these things. But Watkin says of these paths that the Bible frequently settles for neither and presents us with something richer than both, a more subtle solution that neither position has the resources to imagine. See, to the extent that the church can see this and embrace it for the wisdom and beauty that it is, rather than simply embracing this or that narrative, there is great opportunity ahead for us, living joyfully and faithfully, even if it is at the margins. And one of the reasons we take so much joy is that while the church may at times be on the margins, 
This is not her final destination. It's so important that verse 21 shows us the victories that Daniel and his friends were winning, and really the victory that God was winning over his phony rivals in their backyard. This was not just a temporary victory we see in verse 21. Verse 21 tells us that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The first year of King Cyrus of Persia. Persia who defeated Babylon. Persia who allowed the exiled Israelites to return home. So what verse 21 does, it reminds us that the kingdom of the true God is going to outlast every other shadow, kingdom, or empire, be it Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Rome, even America. And even as things feel upside down, even, even as culture changes, the church has, has the privilege of, of remaining calm and confident, functioning uh, as what that same Australian author, Mark Sayers, calls a non-anxious presence, a non-anxious presence. Because we know that just as Daniel outlasted the empire of Babylon, so too will our Savior and his church outlast every rival kingdom and every rival narrative and every rival so-called God. And we especially see this is true when we put the amazing story of Daniel in the context of an even greater story that is unfolding in the Bible and in some ways is still unfolding today. There are a lot of ways that this great story is expressed, and the specific story of Daniel and how he handled the food in Babylon is part of a wider theme in the Bible of how people dealt with food, interestingly. And in each case, it wasn't the food itself, but, but the food represented something much bigger. We already mentioned uh, Joseph in Egypt, how the Egyptians would eat separately from the Israelites. You can go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve created by God and given an incredible garden to live in, everything that they needed with just one tree that they were told not to eat from. But of course, Adam and Eve ate from that tree. They chose the way of compromise. They defiled themselves, to use the language of Daniel. And the world was plunged into sin and despair. And throughout the Old Testament, food keeps making an appearance. Abraham prepares a feast for the Lord in Genesis 18. God uses a famine to bring his people into Egypt and later brings them out and provides for them miraculously in the wilderness. Even in the book of Esther, God uses a feast to bring about justice for his people. And that's just naming a couple examples. And then very early in the New Testament, just as Daniel was, Jesus is tempted to defile himself with food. After fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, his enemy, Satan, appears to him and tells him to turn stones into bread so that he can eat and be satisfied. And just like in Daniel's situation, it wasn't the food itself that was the problem. Jesus ate bread all the time and even miraculously provided multiplied bread to feed the crowds. The problem was what eating the food would have said about Jesus and which kingdom he belonged to. And in a story that, that, that very much shows Jesus to be a greater version of Daniel, and in a story that shows that, that Jesus succeeds where Adam failed and where we so often fail, Jesus refuses to eat this bread, he refuses to defile himself, and he shows that God's kingdom is greater and more worthy than the kingdom of Satan and the kingdoms of this world. And then you'll remember later in his ministry, there's another meal. Jesus offers his disciples a meal, a meal of bread and wine. And just as the food in Daniel 1 wasn't just about food, but was representing something far greater, the bread and the wine that Jesus offered to his disciples represents the great sacrifice of his body 
and his blood offered for them, offered for us on the cross, where he would die for us and for our sin, for all the ways that we have so often failed to trust him. Jesus offered this meal to his disciples in a different cultural backdrop, in the midst of a time of Roman domination. See, if Babylon was a great empire, it was nothing compared to Rome. But just as Daniel outlasted the Babylonian empire, so the gospel that Jesus preached and the church that Jesus established would far outlast and far exceed even the great Roman empire. And we know that it will never perish. And the meal that Jesus offered to his disciples, that communion meal, we eat that meal together often as a church. And as we eat this meal, we're, we're strengthened, we're united. And we also long for something more because the church's destination is another meal. When Jesus returns to this earth and makes all things new and all things right and where we will surely dine with him and one another as his people, it will be a meal not of defilement. It will be a meal not of longing, but a meal of triumph and celebration. And when we remember that this is where we are headed, and when the longings and desires of our heart are directed toward that kingdom, we have the joy and privilege of living boldly and resiliently and respectfully and joyfully, no matter what temporary earthly kingdom or empire we find ourselves in, knowing that we are here as a pointer to God's true and lasting kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we are so glad for your word. And just again and again, we see how much better you are than anything this world has to offer. We see these, these empires come and go, and we see you triumph over them again and again. And we thank you so much for the confidence and the joy that we can have as a result. Lord, we pray that you would help us. There are so many ways that we can defile ourselves, even today. And we pray that you would give us courage. And we pray that you would give us an understanding that knowing you and following you is just so much better than anything else, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to show your kindness to us. And that someday, Lord, that we would be with you in a new heaven and new earth. We long for that day. And we thank you so much for Jesus how he came to this earth, how he refused defilement, and how he went to the cross for us, Lord. Lord, we're so, so grateful for him. We're so grateful for this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.